Hello, everybody, and welcome to the TeacherCast Educational Broadcasting Network. My name is Jeff Bradbury, and welcome to the Tech Educator Podcast. We are live on Tuesday night, June 13th. Tonight, we're going to be talking all about project-based learning. We have a fantastic guest. He is the creator and author of a fantastic brand-new book, part of the Hacked Learning series. But before we get to that, we're going to be talking a lot about ISTE. We've been doing a little bit of our, on our pre-show. And if you guys are going to be out there at ISTE, I'm going to be out there at ISTE. There's going to be plenty of great opportunities out there to meet and connect. I hope to see you guys there. We have a fantastic panel tonight. I want to bring on from California, Mr. Sam Patterson. Sam, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. What Glad is up here. and what is new? Well, uh, finishing out the school year, we have just ha a couple days left. I actually taught my last class today, and it was great because it was my fifth graders, and we got to end it with a video call with the fifth grade class that they had been responding to for their uh, design thinking work this year. And that was just a super fun moment. That sounds like an awful lot of fun. What, 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 what were the kids having fun about? Well, the, they'd done the whole design thinking process, and we can get further into this later. But it was great to just hear. I was uh, video chatting with Doug Robertson's class, the, the weird teacher. And they had earlier in the year given my kids a bunch of feedback to surveys. From that feedback, my kids designed video games and books and songs and all of this stuff, responding to the needs of his students. And then we put it on a web page and sent it back to him. And today was the first like in-person feedback opportunity. So that was a lot of fun. That sounds pretty fun and weird all at the same time. <laughs> From the Gray State of Massachusetts, Jennifer Judkins, how are you tonight? Great. Wrapping things up, but staying busy through the end. What is keeping you busy these days in your school? Uh, doing a fun coding project with um, Scratch Junior with two second grades. It's super fun because the kids are working together at the same time. So um, I have two classes that have sort of co-mingled and they're working in groups um, with students that are in the other class. So they're really excited about that. And it's just so exciting to see how they're making a digital story about um, the uh, tide pool system, ecosystem that they learned about and incorporating all their science vocabulary and being super creative, drawing their own little critters. So that's fun. And working with seventh grade this week, also doing some uh, math work, geometry with Google Drawing. So having fun with that too. That sounds like a blast. Of course, we are sitting here uh, wrapping up the school year. And as we're looking at next year, many school districts are looking at things to do and, and initiatives to bring in. And recently I was at a conference and I, I saw an amazing keynote done by a friend of mine. I want to bring him on as a guest today. He is the supervisor of instructional practice for all K-12 at Salisbury Township School District. He's an Apple Distinguished Educator. He's a Google Certified Innovator. And he's the amazing co-author of a brand new book called Hacking Project based learning from the great state of Pennsylvania, Mr. Ross Cooper. How are you doing, my friend? Good. How are we doing? I am doing fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. I, I, I got to tell you, yeah. the book is amazing. I recently saw you doing a keynote um, with, with your co-author, Aaron. There's a lot of people saying some amazing things about this book. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, unfortunately, Aaron couldn't be here. She, uh, she's a slacker. I don't know where she is, but uh, we'll get her on some other time maybe. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was fun to write the book with her, and um, it was fun to connect with you in that a couple of weeks ago now in New Jersey. That was a lot of fun. That was great. So thank you for your kind words. Now, your book is part of the Hacked Learning series. I've been seeing a lot of these Hacked Learning books. Talk to us a little bit about the Hacked Learning series and how we can find more information about it. Yeah, so that was started by Mark Barnes, um, I'm going to say a year or two ago. And the first one was a uh, – he's a publisher. I think it, the uh, – his company is Times 10 Publications, and he started a couple years ago. First book was Hacking Education with uh, Jennifer Gonzalez, and since then, I want to say ours was the ninth book in the series, and he's come out with one more, which was um, Hacking Google for Education, which was written by our friends, the Satchat guys out in New Jersey, Brad Curry, Scott Rocco, and uh, Billy Krakauer, and there's some other Great. I mean, they're all they're all excellent books. Practical tips, uh, some research, but for the most part, practical tips that you could really apply the next day, uh, pretty darn easily to improve the learning experiences for your students. So you have everything from hacking leadership with my good friends Tony Sananas and Joe Sanfilippo to hacking assessment with Star Saxstein. Um, you have hacking homework, which Star wrote with Connie Hamilton. So re really great set of books, and you just you know plug hacking 
um, hacking education at the Amazon and they're all come up. Or you could go to the hacking, uh, hacking education website as well and get some more background information. And we will certainly have links to all of that stuff. But today we're going to be talking all about project-based learning, PBL. Uh, Ross, what can you tell us about project-based learning? I've heard about it. I've, I've seen teachers being labeled as project-based learning teachers. Um, mm-hmm. what, what is the general definition that we talk about when we say project-based learning? You know, it, it's interesting. So I talked about this a little bit at Rutgers. Sometimes we look at project-based learning as, you know, kind of like black and white. And I think a lot of times we look at a lot of things in education as black and white, right? We're either doing it or we're not doing it. And for the most part, it's re- it really is tough to find PBL, but I almost look at it as an inquiry-based unit. So if you look at something like understanding by design, there are a lot of similarities between that, you know, the whole idea of backwards design that most of us have gone through as teachers, uh, you know, through professional development. A lot of times it really just really mimics understanding by design with maybe a little bit more inquiry and student discovery thrown in. So when we talk about the different components of project-based learning, you you might look at everything from you know, Sam earlier talked about like maker spaces to learning spaces to even like effective feedback and student publishing. These are all components of great teaching and learning practices that you could do with or without full-blown PBL. So a lot of times teachers are surprised when they're like, how do I get started with PBL? And they're already like on the track and they're already on the way there and they just don't know it yet. And when somebody is looking to learn a little bit about more about project-based learning, I mean, is this an easy thing to incorporate? Is this something that is more trial and error? Um, what do you say to somebody who maybe this time of year is now being asked to bring project-based learning into their classroom or even into a school building? Um, so I think there are a couple of different approaches. Is looking at all the different components and starting and really just starting there. Um, so, like I said, whether it's giving more effective feedback, whether it's creating this culture of inquiry and, you know, risk-taking in your classroom, that all lends itself to project-based learning. So that's all moving in the right direction. I think a nice uh, starting point as well, and this is kind of what worked for me when I first started out with PBL about eight years ago, was just, for the most part, looking at one unit that you're doing within the upcoming year. And a lot of times it's more, you know, the science and the social studies, the content areas that lend themselves to PBL. Although in reality, it can be anything. And just taking that one unit and really thinking to yourself, how can I reformulate this to make it PBL-based? And I think, you know, letting other teachers know you're going to do that so you can garner their support, tapping into the expertise of those not just inside of your district but outside of your district your administration but also communicating this to your students and letting them know hey we're taking a little bit of a risk you know there's this thing called pbl here's what it is we're going to take this unit and we're going to reformulate it and we're going to take some risks and by letting the students in on it then you're working together towards those goals rather than it just being something that is done to them and that really fosters collaboration and trust and risk taking and you're more likely to be successful but i think starting with one unit is a nice is a nice starting point now when you say get the students on board what does that mean and how would you suggest going about that so so i think it you know it it really starts the first day of school it's culture right and a lot of times we have this idea that culture is this initiative or culture is this something that's once and done you start by establishing it you know just like in a school you start by establishing at the very beginning but it really shifts as a result of the successes that you have in your school and you have um, in your classroom but letting the students know something i used to do with my fourth graders hey like you know i want you to be comfortable um with the iterative process. I want you to be comfortable making mistakes. I want you to be comfortable taking risks. So letting, rather than just trying to create that culture, letting them being explicit and letting them know what you're trying to create. So then you're doing it together. So it's like, okay, I want, as you know, I know you're not, I know you're 10 years old. I want you to be comfortable taking risks in my classroom. How can we move in that direction rather than just as a teacher taking a shot in the dark and trying to make it happen? So a lot of times, you know, it does some of the things that I used to do is, yes, you have those icebreakers at the beginning of the year, um, but redesigning the classroom, digging into, you know, inquiry-based companies, watching videos on what effective collaboration does and doesn't look like, reflecting upon the past experiences, what has and what hasn't worked for you. That intentionality about establishing that culture is really important and letting the students in on it. And I I think it really, through my experiences, it really happens as a result of how the teacher reacts to it. Because if you're telling the students, okay, like I want you to take risks, 
it's okay to make mistakes, but then a student makes a mistake and I don't react to it appropriately as a teacher. If my actions are different than my words, and that's a big problem. So I think, you know, those, you could say all those things at the beginning of the year and throughout the year, but the way you react to those mistakes and the way you react to that risk taking uh, really speaks volumes in moving in the right direction for students. You know, when we're looking at risk taking, creating a culture, I have to, you know, ask Sam about what he's doing over there in the makerspace. You have kids that come in, you have classrooms that come in, and you're asking them basically to think outside of the box and create puppets, create robots, create projects. Sam, would you consider what you're doing to be somewhat project-based? Um, there are certainly elements of what we, what I do that overlap with project-based learning. I was actually, uh, just yesterday, Grant Hosford, the guy who, the CEO of the company that gave, gave us the foos, wrote an article about teaching computer science, and he mentioned me as a teacher who does PBL right. <clears throat> and I was kind of like, oh, that's interesting. Because uh, we spend a lot of time defining things. And this year, I've really just spent a lot of time trying to <clears throat> get to know my kids and do really cool hands-on stuff and keep them involved and respond to what they want. And we certainly have done some units that would fit really well with PBL. And I love resources out there like the, uh, the Buck Institute. It has some really great uh, resources for planning, reflecting on that kind of thing in PBL. And what I love about it is it's a nice framework to introduce student choice and to introduce kind of a student-centered curriculum. Um, it's funny because, Ross, you're talking about how we help the students into this. We also have all of these structures to really help us as teachers into this because we have to put ourselves in a situation where we don't have complete control over what's going to happen. Yes, yes. Um, because the lessons get really good and they get really genuine when we start doing things I hadn't imagined we would do. And they start asking questions I didn't know they would ask, right? And we start following those. And that kind of flexibility and responsiveness, I think, is the kind of thing you'll find in a lot of PBL. So what, what I come back to and what I really focus on is, you know, developing student autonomy, empowering students to make decisions. And co uh, collaboration is really, really hard to teach, right? And a lot of times we have group work, but I think if you, you know, asked teachers if group work and collaboration were the same thing, not a one of them would say they were the same thing, mm. right? So um, in, in the makerspace, we, at least my makerspace, we really come into this project-based learning as kind of a friendly mode because it does put student interests first. It asks students to make decisions about what's going on. And it involves everybody in a process that isn't set in stone from the beginning. I think, I think um, Sam, can I build off of what you said? Please. So I think, you know, the whole, I, and I think, I know I made this mistake um, 100% as a teacher. And I'd be willing to bet that most teachers have made this mistake. The idea of putting students into a group telling them to do something, they don't do it, they don't get along, and then we get angry with them. And I know I know that I definitely did that uh, with my fourth grade students. And to be honest, you know, teachers have trouble, you know, or even administrators have trouble getting along at times because those norms haven't been established and we don't necessarily know what collaboration, collaboration looks like and we think we do. So we expect it of our students, but even as adults sometimes we struggle with it. And I think, once again, we have to be intentional about um, about um, you know making sure we establish that culture of collaboration, and then I think also communicating to the students that it's not an expectation. It's not an expectation that we just put you in the group and we get along. It's a learned it's a learned skill. You know, we teach students language arts, math, science, social studies, and we always talk about like this whole idea of growth mindset. And I've heard growth mindset way too many times in the past couple of years, but it's like it's true though. Like like we need to condition students and adults um, that like this whole idea of collaboration is a learned skill that if you're not good at it, that if you have a problem with the student with whom you're working, that you're not going to get into trouble. We're going to use this as a learning opportunity because you need to get better at this, just like you need to get better at your core subjects. Right. And a lot of teachers, I don't think have had a real opportunity to encounter collaboration as a skill that can be taught. Like it's an, like you said, it's kind of an expectation, but 
you know, <clears throat> if we take a moment and, you know, kind of empathize with those students in group work, right? You're in a class and these may be kids you know very well or they may be kids that you only know, you know, incidentally throughout mm -hmm. the day. And it could be alphabetical or who, you know, who knows what the grouping is, but you're in this random at times grouping where you're expected to meet this external goal that you have an incomplete understanding of. Everyone in your group has an incomplete understanding of, and they either have no input or they have an idea. And if they have no input, then they have to, they're either engaged or not at all. If they have an idea, then they're immediately engaged in the, the ego struggle of, I have an idea and I need other people to listen to it and incorporate it into their ideas. I mean, oh Christ, that's really hard. Like, yes. think, think yes. about, you know, the last staff meeting you were at where somebody said, you know, we should do lunch differently. And, you know, more than one person had an idea. How long did that take to reach resolution, right? Mm -hmm. So where do we teach that? Well, maybe we expect that our, you know, elementary school teachers are just doing it in the midst of their day, right? Or that we'll pick it up as we try to get them to do chemistry at the same time. No, we need to, like, that, that needs to be such an important learned skill that we're willing to teach it and we're willing to give it time and space to do it, right? So we take something like PBL, right? And we say, you know what, we're gonna do a makerspace PBL unit that is gonna be you know, driven by something that we're not gonna require to be tied to a piece of curriculum necessarily, right? Or we're gonna do these other things and what we're really gonna be focusing on is collaboration. So we're gonna talk about that more then we talk about how to build the robot you're building or whatever it is, right? And I go to robots because they're my favorite collaboration tool. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> it's scarcity of resource requires them to work together. Mm -hmm. Which brings me to a question, Russ. One of the things that I hear a lot about PBL is like they need to be authentic problems, right? Yeah. yeah. So, and I think that that banner of authenticity can be really intimidating. Yes. What, what is your take on giving the kids real problems or solvable problems or, or this kind of thing? Where, where does that line need to be? You know, it's interesting. So I'll plug one of the blog posts I did not too long ago. And it was, it was titled, I think, like two like, easy entry points in the PBL. And, and one of the points, um, one of the points is what I mentioned earlier that, you know, it's not black and white. Right. Like if you're giving effective feedback, for instance, that's like going on your way to PBL. The other thing, too, is um, I said you don't have to break down the four walls of your classroom. You know, that's one of the points that I said, because we have this whole idea of about authenticity. And in my mind, authenticity is great. But if we could just move towards inquiry, then th that's fine. Th then we're good. And I think like it's even tough to define authenticity because so, for instance, the big project that I talk about throughout um, the, the uh, book is my students build pinball machines. Okay. Now, a lot of people might say that's not necessarily authentic because like they're not pinball machines. We're not putting them into an actual arcade. You know, we're just building them for ourselves. But then other people might say it is authentic because this is something that's real. They're solving, you know, the same problems electricians would solve as they build their circuits. So therefore it is authentic. I think, I think there's just so many different versions of what authentic is in my mind if it's inquiry and it's relevant to the students if it's relevant to the students not necessarily engaging for the teachers but relevant to the students and there's a big difference then i think it's okay but when we get caught up in this whole idea that they have to go into the real world and solve these problems i think there's there's a place for that and i did have my students do that and even now some of my teachers do that but if that's going to be in order to do pbl they need to do that go into the real world solve a problem that's intimidating, and to keep that up all year round, like you're gonna, the teachers and students will tire themselves out. So I think, I almost think, you know, when you see these, I don't want to call them PBL purists, but people who have this very certain strict idea of what PBL is. It's not PBL because they're not solving a problem in the real world. I think almost it could be discouraging for people who really want to get started. I, I, I really do. Um, so well, there's, there's a lot of traffic in the education world 
arguing about terms. Yeah. Yeah. And and exactly. certainly like like what exactly is PBL? Well, there's a lot of different models of PBL, right? Like it doesn't yeah. it's not one omnibus thing. And there are some people who are really passionate about their specific version of PBL yeah. and they can be a great resource. But you know, I certainly wouldn't I, I certainly would encourage every teacher to try to find ways to, you know, allow their students to ask questions that matter to what you're learning in class, right? I, I yeah. think, um, Sam, that's one of the things that I think a lot of teachers struggle with is just that starting point. So I'm a science teacher, so inquiry-based learning is like, that's that's my jam. So that's that like comes very naturally. But I think, you know, working with teachers as a tech coach in other discipline areas, the struggle is that starting point you know, what is the, what is the open-ended question that's going to, that's going to allow for real deep learning and, and deep inquiry? Like what, what is that, you know, whether authentic or not, but what is that big idea that the kids are going to spend time, you know, working on and, and problem solving? And so, you know, I wonder, Ross, to, to ask you, um, and perhaps Sam, you have some resources to share, but where are the places that you suggest teachers go um, and those might be discipline specific. I, I did some searching for our math, one of our math teachers recently and came across a fantastic uh, math teacher's blog, uh, Miscalculate with the, with the number eight at the end. I don't know if you've seen that, Sam, but it's, it's no. really great. She did a great job of putting together in a Google Doc a whole year-long PBL that she built over many years and is sharing that out with everybody. And you know, I found a great project on there and she uses a lot of the math assessment projects, the maps uh, tools and and other resources. But, um, you know, I, I just I want to be able to support teachers and I don't. OK, Ross, where Jen had just asked, where can a teacher who's looking for information and resources about getting started with project based learning go and find some good resources to begin to figure out how they can work this into their teaching? So, so I think if you're looking for, you know, kind of like ready-made pro, uh, projects, like, but we also want cool ideas as well. Um, Buck Institute is a great way to go. Um, and Sam, you mentioned that earlier. Even looking at, uh, like I mentioned this as well, um, understanding have uh, un units there, and those could also work with PBL. Um, the Edutopia project-based learning page is a great way to go. Uh, you might not get necessarily kind of like, you know, the project template in black and white, but you'll definitely get project ideas through articles that you read and videos too for inspiration. And getting smart um, over the last couple of years has really emerged uh, with some really great PBL information too. So I, I would check those three out. If you're looking for project ideas, those three would be great places to go. Excellent. Excellent. And, um, I would imagine that your book also might be a good spot for teachers to start. Yeah, so it's not, there are ideas. So at the end of every chapter, you have something called the hack in action. So, um, and thanks for the cheap plug. Um, so you have, uh, you, have, uh, you have something called the hack in action at the ev end of every chapter. And basically it's like, okay, we just wrote a chapter on crafting um, essential questions, or we call them umbrella questions, you know, like, so here it is in action in the classroom. So you get 10 of those as well. And actually the last one, when we talk about student reflection and publishing, we talk about maker spaces and that's based on an Edutopia piece I did with Laura Fleming, who does a lot of work with maker spaces as well. One of the things I'm going to mention real quick, and this is in the book too, is we talked about, you know, the whole idea of authenticity and, and problems, finding problems. What, uh, what Aaron and I, uh, kind of came up with are these three different tracks to get started with PBL and we call it the problem track, um, the open-ended track and the product track. Actually, I should do it in a certain order. So product is the most restricted product problem than open-ended. So product is every student is building the same product, obviously. And sometimes we kind of like, oh, they shouldn't all be doing the same thing, but there's flexibility in regards to how that product, you know, what that product looks like. So once again, the pinball machines, every student's building a pinball machines with certain constraints. So anytime we're design, you know, we're engineering, we have those constraints, but there's flexibility and creativity in, re in regards to how it's created. 
the problem is kind of what we talked about earlier, Sam, was, you know, students either find the problem or they're given a problem. And that really lends itself to authenticity in the real world. So one of the things that I had my students do was um, they adopted an endangered animal and did whatever they could to help that animal to survive, whether it was a fundraiser, whether it was hanging signs to raise awareness or something like that. The open-ended track would be the least restrictive. And that's basically like telling the students, you know, if you think more about like genius hour, 20% time, passion pro projects, um, you know, at, by the conclusion of this, I want you to show that you understand this. Go. You know, and as a result of showing those understandings, they're going to naturally bump into their own personal interests as well and have opportunities to pursue their own passions. So in short, those are three tracks we came up with that kind of gets teachers to kind of wrap their heads around. There you go. Ross, have you seen the, uh, I just saw a picture of this this week. It was a project that a teacher did. Of, it, they took cardboard pinball machines but then they made four of them interlocking. So like you could start on one pinball machine and then go to another and then to another, like if you were the ball, like the balls were running a labyrinth of these four pinball machines. I did not see that. That sounds like Noah's Arcade almost, like that type of thing. That sounds, that yeah, sounds really like, cool. Like, you know, I was just like, okay, that is totally taking it to the next level. Because I've seen, you know, like the cardboard pinball machine, and I've seen like the circuit-enabled cardboard pinball yeah. machine. Um, and, you know, in a lot of ways, like the actual pinball machines are just these glorious shrines to circuitry, right? Like, they are, they are the ultimate <laughs> of analog circuitry right yeah. there next to tube amplifiers, right? Because they're, they're giant computers, right? Like, yeah. that's, that's really what they're doing. And um, <clears throat> we, we actually had one in the basement when I was growing up. It was like this 1950s one. You could, like, open it up and look up inside and see everything underneath it. So that was awesome. always really cool. Very intriguing to me. Um, I want to circle back to a point you made earlier about how the project-based learning, it needs to be a question that's intriguing to the students, but not necessarily the teacher. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about that, that uh, yeah, and how teachers can work to kind of find that balance. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. So an example, is my volume okay? Are we good? Good, okay. So an example that I always give is I'm a huge foodie. So anybody who's friends with me on any type of social media knows that you know, I love food. Um, so one of the things that I had my students do, the name of the school at which I worked was uh, called Willow Lane. So we call it Top Chef Willow Lane. And, it, you know, to me, it was glorious because I love food. The directions were designed as a menu. You know, it was like I was serving them food. Here's the, you know, I, I loved it. And they actually went to the restaurants themselves and they took notes and they converted them into uh, restaurant, authentic restaurant reviews, which they actually um, sent out to the restaurants and some of them got gift certificates back and things like that. Sounds great. Looking back on it though, you know, if, you know, we always iterate and we always continue to learn. Did I ask any of my students if they were foodies or did I ask any of my students, um, you know, if they wanted to write? Although it might've been engaging and relevant to me, was it necessarily relevant to them? You know, was it something that they really, was it me trying to sell it to them as, hey, Mr. Cooper is excited about this, you should be too? Or is it me giving them voice and saying, hey, you know, we're, we're learning how to write, um, you know, and if you look at all the components that make up a restaurant review, a lot of the time it's like, you know, it's a little bit of a, you know, it's a little bit nonfiction, it's a little bit of a narrative, different genres, but here, here are the genres that we're learning. How about, we dive into your interests and you could tackle that however you want in a way that's relevant to you rather than a way that, that I appreciate. And I think that's the difference between, you know, that whole idea of student voice. And it, mm -hmm. it, could, it could be scary because then you might get 30 different essays that I have to grade. Um, but at the end, they could all be graded in a very similar way because you're looking at students to walk away with the same understandings regardless of what genre they're writing. So, right. it, could, so it could be scary, but yeah. Yeah. You have 30 different essays to grade, right? Mm -hmm. Like those 30 identical essays that they don't actually make it any easier to grade, right? They just make you realize by the end of it that all you've done is teach the kids to put these words in this order. Mm -hmm. So, you know, having 30 different essays to grade or, you know, okay, great. That can be a challenge, but, 
but it's also a gift because you suddenly have all of this different data to work with. It feels actual and real because you're not saying to every kid, please use more detail and trying to figure out different ways to say, please use more detail. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's a really good example because like, like the restaurant review, that sounds like kind of a, a pinnacle lesson, right? Like when I started in my teaching career, that would be the, the kind of thing that I was always working to really like, oh, I could develop that. And over the next couple of years, I could each, you know, build these little pieces up and then maybe we'll collect them into a little zine. And, you know, but yeah, at the same time, I get all up in my own head about that. And that's great. If I want to start my own blog, mm -hmm. my restaurant reviews, more power to me, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, you know, those same elements could be any number of different kinds of reviews because kids can review anything. Right. And there are reviews of literally everything out there. And there's hilarious reviews, right? There's incredibly well written reviews out there mm -hmm. of string trimmers and the mini marshmallows that you can buy in the five pound mm -hmm. bag from Amazon, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you could so much in actually with a lot and here's the the dirty secret about student choice it's less prep right you actually have to be more responsive but if you don't plan everything out ahead of time you can really only plan the framework and then you sometimes have to find some supports and you're honest with the kids and they ask you for something you don't know anything about it's like wow gymnasts i'm sure i know a gymnast I'll try to find, do you know a gymnast? I mean, this is like, you know, you can really turn it back. Well, yeah, my teacher's a gymnast because that's where I go to, okay, great. Can you give her my card? You know, um, and then you're networking for what the kid needs through the kid. It's happened. But um, I read um, Don Wetrick's book. Uh, was Pure it Pure Genius? Genius. Pure Genius. Yeah. And that there was a lot about setting up uh, mentorships and getting people to talk to people and this kind of stuff. And one of the things I love doing in PBL is just bringing in resources whenever possible, right? So, and and that's great because you want it. You want the kids to know the authority for these things doesn't exist in this classroom. Like I am a yes. connector. I am not, you know, an encyclopedia. I am not a bank of knowledge. I am a switchboard, mm -hmm. and I'm going to help you find you know what you need. And I'm going to help you figure out what to type into Google to make it happen. But, you know, that's, if I make it about what I know, everyone loses, including me. Because eventually I'm going to get sick of what I know. So instead, let the kids make choices that make us smarter as teachers. Yeah. You, you mentioned the, uh, a key word a while back, the word responsive. Like who's responding to who? You know, are, are the students responding to our needs and what we like, or are we giving the students voice actively, not just listening, but seeking to understand where they're coming from, looking at their interests, looking at their strengths and weaknesses, and then responding to them. And it's it's difficult because, like you said, it's, it's less planning. It's more like upfront. It's more on the fly. It can be scary. But ultimately, if we want to meet the needs of these students... Um, it's necessary because they're not dumb. Like they're they're not dumb, and I think, you know, and I've seen I've seen, um, you know, some getting into classrooms. I see students with very insightful comments, and they're they're very much in tune to the fact that in a lot of instances they're moving, you know, thousands of miles an hour outside of school, and then only ten miles an hour inside of school, you know, and that you know, and this is a generalization, but in a lot of instances, like school is a dumbed down version of reality. They know that they know that, and they know that because. They have these, you know, they, they know what's going on out there. Um, so, yeah, say, so there's, yeah, there's a world out there. Like, you know, you hear people pitch all the time about preparing kids for a future that we don't even know and understand and jobs that don't exist yet. Right. Um, <laughs> all we have to do is get them ready to learn anything they want to learn. Mm -hmm. Right. There, the tools that we have to learn are just going to keep getting better. You know, there's, you know, I'm sure that augmented reality and virtual reality are going to get to a level that they're, they're actually a great asset. But for right now, just, just information itself, you know, just YouTube, right? You want to do something incredibly useful, 
teach kids how to learn from a video, right? Take a couple minutes, mm -hmm. do a lesson on, I don't know, a paper airplane. Find a simple video on how to fold a paper airplane. Watch it with the kids, stop it at the important points, rewind, show them how to do that. And then suddenly you've got that skill that they're building as in their kind of DIY learning tool belt. And that can empower you as a teacher to set up stations that have different YouTube videos for different skills. Mm -hmm. Now, you'll have to work on a culture of when one YouTube video ends, we don't shout out for the next one and we don't go on to something random. And that you know can require a little bit of management, but it's totally worth it because suddenly you've created a portal to allow other people to teach your students to free you up to work with the kid who's having trouble with his Chromebook or you know anything else. Essentially, you're expanding the definition of literacy. That's that's really, and that and that's what we need to do. You know, somebody said I I don't want to. Somebody said, like, if you don't know, it might have been George Kuros who said, like, if you don't know what a hashtag is or a handle is, like, you're illiterate. You know, at somebody, I think it might have been him. Um, that sounds like it's, George. It's, yeah, probably George. Um, so, but, um, but you know, that, I mean, it's true. It, it's absolutely true. And, um, you know, the whole idea of YouTube, you know, you see a lot, I've seen uh, blog posts where people write about students. You know, you talk about close reading, you know, at the elementary level or middle level. You know, you doing like a close reading, but like with a video, you know, you watch it over and over again, you watch, you do an analysis of it, you know, you dig in deeper. I mean, it's, I mean, there's tremendous value in that. I mean, it really and the kids is, can yeah. make them themselves. Right. And here's the wild yeah. thing, right? Like, like even when the kids were doing yeah. audio recordings and we were just, you know, trying to record that we had to set up the audio tape and get everything queued up. Yeah. We can be like, okay, take a picture of it and explain everything, read into it and then send it to me. And not only can they do it, they're excited to be able to do it, right? They want to know how to make a video. It's the most exciting thing in the world. And it's so accessible, right? So, you know, that literacy is one that in the, in the PBL world, you have to have because you need them to be able to get information from videos. Yes. Yes. And publish videos and publish the social media and, you know, um, what was I the, um If you're familiar with the work of Don Goble, I'll give somebody else a shout out. Shout out. He's where is he out of? I think somewhere in the Midwest. He does great work with video production, and and I had the opportunity to see him present in Chicago uh, when I went there about a month ago. And he talked. He was talking about video in very much the same way you're talking about it, Sam. In that it's not a project; it's a practice. You know, and that really resonated with me. A lot of times, it's like we're going to do the iMovie project, or November is when we, you know, we break out the video editing. You know, and I think it's just something that needs to be ubiquitous. It needs to be everywhere, just like it is for adults. Like we don't even think about it. Like we naturally post our well, stuff like to it, social media to get right, it doesn't need it doesn't need to be ubiquitous. It is ubiquitous. It, yes, yes. And if you're ignoring it, then you're ignoring it, yeah, right? Yeah. But it's already right. there. It's all the kids already yeah. have it, right? Yeah. And half the time if you're asking them to do something that would work better on a video. You can see it in their head where they're like, why aren't we just making a video about this? Right? How, what? We're doing the what? <laughs> um, you know, my kids will build a scratch project for anything. It's like their favorite version of expressing themselves, mm -hmm. even over video. But it's, you know, that's kind of one step beyond that. Like it's, it's programming as a mode of self-expression. So just like we could create a video to share something, we can also do it with a computer program and make that interactive. Yeah, I, I completely agree. But I like the well, idea of it as yeah, a practice. I wanted to also touch on, you know, we're talking about the importance of not over planning and over structuring lessons and that being just a really important aspect of PBL and allowing more student agency in your classrooms. But um, as someone who works in a public school district, I will say that that is a, a challenge and a tough sell for teachers because there's an anxiety there about you know, wanting to keep the kids on a track and a path that, that, that they can sort of plan accordingly and know, okay, this project will take my kids six days, you know, okay, if it's seven, but it can't be 10, because that'll like really mess with my whole schedule. And the fact that other people are counting on me to cover certain content before this point in the year. And I, and I, I think it's really important to speak to that in this conversation, because 
Um, you know, I don't think that that is a reflection of teachers being rigid. I think it's a reflection of the reality of the situation and knowing that, you know, there are, but, but I think we're, we're talking a little bit about it, to, but to really highlight that there are different ways to deliver content. And so we are delivering content in these, in these kinds of things. You were just talking about, um, you know, the, the, the media literacy, the information literacy piece, which is such a, a cornerstone of any PBL project to, to, to develop that fluency with kids and the ability to critically analyze information and all of that. And, and so I just want to take a minute to highlight some of those things and also speak to the challenges of teachers in a public school environment where they're feeling a little more confined by time and also standards. I, I think those are super, super important. Um, one that's been a big challenge for me, I do a lot of collaborative work and this is my first year as a makerspace teacher. And I honestly didn't know what a lot of things were going to look like. And it was my first year at this school. So my introduction to a lot of these teachers could have shorthanded into, hi, I'm Sam, I'm the new guy. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know when we're going to do it. I don't know how long it's going to take and I don't know what it will be. What do you teach? Um, and yeah, that was something where it was like, oh, we got to plan some different way for this. And I, I adopted a model that I call glibly the nine week, six week project. So it is, what I had the kids do was they planned out a six week project and they had to do like a project management thing. This is what I'm gonna do day one. This is what I'm gonna do day three. And I took that six week project and I made it take up nine weeks on the calendar. And there were times where some groups were at day three and other groups were at day four and other groups were at day two because stuff went wrong with every single group at different times. But almost everybody finished the six weeks and nine. So um, that ended up being okay with the teachers I worked with because they're you know co-teaching with me and we're running these passion projects using a design thinking model, which is you know this specialized hybridization. And it's the first time any of us are doing it. And that ended up being all right. We had a sense for what the goals we were trying to hit were. We had a lot of reflection built in. We had time for it. We had time as a group to talk about where we were at. We adjusted what we were doing at the end right before we got there. So I hear what you're saying, Jen. And I think that one way to begin to approach that is to say, okay, we're gonna take and we're gonna plan six days and we're just gonna put them nine days on the calendar. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, and That's I great. think the, the other thing is that, um, you know, just like when I'm working with teachers in, in a tech coaching capacity, looking at ways to infuse instruction, this is no different. I mean, as a tech coach, I'm really trying to talk to people about innovative ways to approach learning. And so that's why I'm involved in makerspace stuff. That's why I'm, I'm you know, half the time working with, with things that have nothing to do with technology because it's really about innovation in the classroom. But um, one of the things that is so essential and really gets the trust of the teachers immediately, I'm sure you know, Sam, is to, to start asking where, where they need to go. What is the goal that they have for the learning? And then, then help them to structure this idea around that that's gonna incorporate these principles of project-based learning so that they're, they're doing it in a different way that yes, it's going to take longer. And that's why, to Ross's point, you don't start your, your, your goal is not to switch your, this is not a light switch that you flip and that suddenly you're gonna stop teaching the way you were teaching. Um, because I, I just had the same conversation with some of my colleagues at the high school um, in the district I work in because it's one of our school goals this coming year to incorporate project-based learning. And so there was, you know, kind of mass panic from some of the teachers, like, wait a minute, like, do I change? Like, does this mean that Oh, right. Yeah. Um, I can't do project-based learning. I've been teaching sixth grade for years. Right, right. And <laughs> and so I think, you know, to, to your point, Ross, like the, the goal is not, first of all, we're not saying that there's anything wrong with the way people are teaching. That's not the case. What we're trying to say is that there are different ways to engage kids. And and if you did every, if you did project-based learning every day, that would get old too. Like, the, you know, you have to kind of have some variety of the ways that you deliver instruction um, and, and get kids involved in the topics that you're covering, but it doesn't have to be everything all at once. To pick one unit, you know, a quarter would be wonderful. And then, and as you point out, 
if you're collaborating with other teachers, your one unit turns into three because you have three, you know, other colleagues that you're sharing and you're sort of tag teaming with. And so um, I, I think that, you know, these things don't have to take weeks on end. You know, I just finished reading the launch book recently, uh, you know, John Spencer and Giuliani there. And we had this conversation in that context too, that, you know, there is a way to rapidly prototype, right? You don't have to prototype, you know, you can, you can kind of go through this design process in a, in a, in a very slow way and, and dig deeper, or you can do it in a couple class periods and you're going through those steps and getting kids familiar with that way of thinking and approaching problems, but without, you know, in the mind of a teacher giving up valuable time that, that they feel nervous to even try something because they're afraid to even let go of, of too much time at once. Right. And, you know, I think one thing that's important to realize is I think that, you know, there are times where I wish that, that Instagram and Pinterest and all of that just didn't exist at all because PBL in all actuality looks a lot uglier than anyone thinks it does. Right. Like the stuff that that ends up being, you know, on social media or whatever. That's one thing. But I want to circle back. You'd mentioned prototyping. Right. When I started in the makerspace, I had this idea of prototype that it was a functional thing. And now I have adjusted my understanding of prototype to mean like bare minimal representation. Right. Yeah, like a sketch. That's like like a, a sketch, Google drawing. Right? Yeah, the lines don't even quite touch, right? This is a prototype of the drawing I would do if I had time. Right. Right. Yeah, and it's it's so much more process oriented, and I think that's another thing that you really have to keep your eye on when you're looking at PBL. Is you know, it's not about eliminating dengue fever somewhere. I mean, it's great if you can do that, but. What it is about is tapping into your students' interests and getting them to do a thing and feel like they did a thing at the end of it, right? And if it can be something that you didn't anticipate beforehand, that's amazing. Um, I think it's a great, like if you're, if you're the kind of teacher that's like, well, I'm really interested, that is interested in how do I do more student choice? It's a great way to say, oh, I'm gonna do this unit. It's gonna have these bounds on it. I can build the culture around that. And then once my kids have that experience, I can know more about, you know, and have some experience myself with that, what other choices I can ask them to make in their learning. And, right? and you know it sells itself, right? Like when, when kids experience and teachers experience project-based learning, you don't have to sell it to them anymore. You know, the, the, the times that I have, I have rolled out projects with teachers, it, consistently I hear them say, this was one of the best things I've done all year or in my teaching career with my kids. You know, I was so excited to see how creative they were. I was so excited to hear the way that they were thinking. And that was so much more evident in this class and this project. And so they're seeing all of those soft skills that are, are those critical skills, but also, you know, they're, they're also seeing very clearly that their curriculum goals are being met. And so doing this in a small scale or, or just trying things out with teachers who might be nervous, the, the great thing is that the experience will sell itself in the end. That, that was a really nice wrap. Like that's, that, that is PBL. That is what we're doing here. Um, this is the Tech Educator Podcast tonight. We're with Ross Cooper here, author of, is it Hacking PBL? I don't want to get the title wrong. Yes, you got the yes. name of my book right. <laughs> right. You got to get the title right. Hacking project-based learning. Yeah. Hacking project-based learning. Uh, check the book out. Find him on Twitter and on Amazon and all of the places. Find him on Amazon first. Give him your money. Then find him on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> read his book. Join the conversation and try something. Yes, and also and also co-authored with Erin because if she watches yeah. this and I don't mention her, she'll she'll yell at me. She yell at me either way, but I think she no, it's she'll yell at me less. Right to be yelled at for the right things. Um, yeah. Yes, I think that I'm wrapping this show up because I think that Jeff is trapped on the other side of Thunderstormland. Yeah. So Ross, give us one more time where we can find you and where your your best links are. So. Um, Basically, I use the same name across the board, Ross Coops 31 So I blog at RossCoops31.com. 
want to contact me, rosscoops31 at gmail. Uh, my Twitter handle is uh, rosscoops31. And so I think that's it. That takes care of most. Yeah, that's, that's a good organizational skill. And, 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 um, <laughs> and I got lucky. That was my old hockey number. And uh, I did the branding the right way back in like high school. And I stuck with it ever since. And I got lucky because nobody you else wants to use rosscoops31. Right? So, so when you see all those crazy Instagram names for those kids that are in middle school, you know, that needs to be a lesson in and of itself, how to wisely. How to grab the right name. So <laughs> I like have, honestly having the same name across the board is the best thing that's happened in my life aside from, well, yes, it's the best thing that's happened in my life. So, <laughs> so I've had a great life. That's, that's so, a little sad, Ron. So, um, so anyways. Hashtag so squad goals. Yeah. So, so, that, so that's it. And then also, yeah, check out the book on Amazon. Um, and, and I think, you know, what Aaron and I really – quick plug what Aaron and I really tried to do with the book is, you know, you know, a lot of times you look at PBL and it's very abstract, you know, and where it's like, you know, it could be overwhelming. Like we did earlier ah, and we wanted, you know, teachers to be able to read this and say like, okay, like I could do this as a result of reading this book. And I yeah. think, and I hope we accomplished that because uh, we thought a very simple, straightforward framework was necessary. And hopefully that's what we created. Excellent. So, and Jen Judkins, where can we find all of your wonderfulness online? So I am consistent also. Uh, my website is teachingforward.net, and I can be found on Twitter at teachingforward. Wow. And I am I'm woefully inconsistent. I'm at Sam Patui on Twitter. It's a long story. It has nothing to do with cheese. And um, <laughs> I, mypaperlessclassroom.com as a blog. And Jeff Bradbury, our humble recalcitrant host, is at what's his what's his address again, Jeff? Isn't it TeacherCast across the board yeah. for everything? Yeah, TeacherCast across the board for everything because he brands like a boss. <laughs> awesome. Um, what's that thing he says at the end, Jen? Keep up the great work in your classrooms and continue sharing your passions with your students. Good night, everybody. 